welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who regrets bringing those murder hornets back from vacation. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello, I have no idea what that's about, but I'm happy to be here. Have you not been following the non-coronavirus news? Uh, no, I have not. I've been reading a whole bunch of books about uh, Ajax and Boca Juniors and a little bit about Liverpool and Real Madrid. Oh, I wish I lived in a world where I did not know about murder hornets. I'm not even going to get into it, Taylor. I'm going to just let you read about it later. I mean, now I'm concerned that if I hear buzzing, I'm going to turn off the recording and run away from uh, my table. So that should be fun. That's the correct response. (laughs) Okay, good. All right. Honestly, that probably would have been my response to murder hornets before you told me about them. Either way, I feel like run away from the murder hornet. (laughs) It does sound like an early MLS franchise, right? It really does. Or an NASL. It's one of those, like, we played that game on the road where it was like, is this a real team or a fake team? And there are some teams in there that you would think were fake, but are real. Yeah. And that does feel like one that maybe could have passed through it. <laughs> Chicago Sting already has the logo, right? But just imagine, <laughs> imagine that be bigger and angrier. It's a, like, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. It's always funny to me that like, in England, it's like these two teams merged and became like a United or whatever. And that's where the United came from. And then in like, like old, like MISL days, it's like, the Jacksonville Murder <laughs> merged with the Jacksonville Hornets and became the Murder Hornets. Like, <laughs> it doesn't quite have that level of pageantry that, like, AFC United or whatever uh, sort of does in England. So on today's show, we will mm. be talking about the 1995 Ajax team, the 2000 Boca Juniors team, and the 2016-18 to 18 Real Madrid, Zinedine Zidane in charge of Real Madrid, that triple Champions yeah, League buddy. winning team, and essentially the current Liverpool team that's yeah that's how the draw came down those two are playing each other in our imaginary bill and ted face the music tournament <laughs> um, yeah I, i'm very excited about that second one I mean, certainly the first one as well but we've got the kind of like recent classic teams and then the very recent classic teams it's gonna be good so we should tell people what we're doing taylor in case this sure. is their first time into the total soccer show one of the things we've chosen to do uh, to fill the time right essentially the coronavirus downtime when there are no new games to talk about We are looking back through history at the best club teams we can find. We're profiling each team as we go. And we've also done a big draw where we match them up against each other. And that's why today it is uh, Boca at home, I believe, right? Uh, Boca Juniors from 2000 versus Ajax from 95, the Champions League Mm -hmm. winning Ajax. And it's Real Madrid are at home, uh, 2016-18 against Liverpool, the current Liverpool team. You are correct on all fronts, my friend. Um, Yeah, so we've got that one. We've got more games uh, coming later in the week. We can announce those in a moment. But first, uh, do do we want to, like, I guess I'll just go ahead and do it. Like, we we also do want to hear back from people about what they're enjoying, about if they'd like it to be, like, a little shorter, a little bit longer, anything like that. We kind of want to know what people think of the tournament so far, because we still got a lot of games and a lot of tournament left to play. (laughs) A lot of teams still to talk about, yeah. So Mm -hmm. do you want uh, this level of detail, a little less detail? Mm -hmm. Um, Let us know and uh, we will deliver. We will yeah. deliver. Uh, are you ready for the first matchup then, Taylor Rockwell? I am indeed. Uh, right. I'm probably going to forget to announce the matchups for later in the week, later in the show, but yeah, we'll see how it goes. If I do, then I look forward to the tweets mocking me for doing it. <laughs> Let's see. Let's see how good your memory is at the end All of right. today's show. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Boca Juniors 2000 versus Ajax 95. Let's start with the home team. Uh, Boca okay. Juniors 2000. This is a team that won... The Copa Libertadores. Yeah, uh, they did. They won it more than just the once, but the classic team is the 2000 team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, managed by Carlos Bianchi. And the um, the essential elements of this team, I would argue, are back to front. Walter Samuel will mess you up, centre-back. Mm-hmm. Um, Juan Roman Riquelme will play make you to death. Mm-hmm. And then Martin Palermo will bully you out of the way and score a goal. That is yes. Boca Juniors 2000. <laughs> yeah, I, I read an article from the Blizzard talking about this team. And I think their, their basic argument was like, one uh, Roman Riquelme is the person who would have the six-lane highway in front of him and that should take two hours to get to his destination, and he takes like the back roads, and it's a six-hour thing. And then uh, Palermo is much more of, like, put me on the bus and get me there as efficiently as possible. I just want to be there. <laughs> So how do you want to talk about this team? We can go tactics. We can go big personalities. Um, I'll go wherever you want to go, Tyler. Um, I think I might start with just like the domination of this team to give people an idea who might be less familiar, as okay. I was in a lot of ways with this team. It, as you said, they, they win this one in 2000, the Copa Libertadores, but they win four straight, which is no mean feat. Uh, they also have massive success on the domestic level as well, and a big part of that is because uh, there was some restructuring at the club. They're able to get more money from the timer- uh, the commercial, is what I was going with, TV and commercial side, so then they're able to reinvest 
bring Academy products through and you have this kind of core team that are very representative of like Argentine traditions, but have a lot of uh, soon to be famous faces and some uh, already famous faces involved in there as well. All right, so let's get into the tactics then. Sure. Um, I would argue that what uh, Carlos Bianchi is doing here, um, it's basically a 4 3 1 2 mm-hmm. or maybe a 4 4 2 diamond, but it is all designed to get the best out of his number 10, Juan Roman Riquelme, who in this mm-hmm. era is in like his early 20s. It's before his move to Europe. He's kind of at his peak, or he's coming towards his South American peak mm-hmm. at the very least. So. Yeah. Let's talk about what kind of player Raquel May was, because it really sure. is all about him, right? I think we're going to mm-hmm. start with him. We'll talk about a lot of other players, and we'll probably end with him when we determine yeah. how this matchup goes down. Um, uh, I'm really excited to talk about him, and I was really excited to read about him because he is a person that you hear a lot about from, for lack of a better way of putting it, like soccer nerds love Juan Roman Raquel May. And I've never <laughs> fully understood why. Uh, and reading more about him, I think I get it. And I think part of it connects to there's a photo of him in Inverting the Pyramid by Jonathan Wilson, and it says, like, the last of the truly great playmakers. And yeah. I always took that as a, like, why don't we make those anymore? Like, he was very good. We should do more of them. And in reading more about him now, I understand why he was so important to this team, but also sort of why his position doesn't necessarily work as well anymore. Yeah, the the reason he's called the last of the great playmakers is it's the last time teams were built around a number 10 exactly, in this way, right? Yeah, number 10s yeah. now are asked to do a lot more work to have defensive responsibilities and this and that. But instead, in Bianca's Boca, um, it's much more old-fashioned style of we're going to have essentially three defensive midfielders behind you, two strikers ahead of you, and you are the number 10, and we will look to you. And if yes. you just search for some Raquel May highlights, mm-hmm. you will be delighted. All yes. kinds of really impressive skills in tight spaces lots of Mm -hmm. uh rolling the ball backwards and forwards but so quickly no one can get it and then anytime he looks trapped anytime he looks surrounded by players he has a sort of macgyverish solution that can always get himself out of trouble really unorthodox spin turns that even if you watch the video twice you absolutely do not see coming that's what i love about watching juan roman riquelme he can get himself out of anything did you see the uh, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes like remakes? Yeah, absolutely. Do, do you remember how he does the whole? I, and I guess I think Benedict Cumberbatch does it too. Like the whole, like, he breaks down the entire sequence before it happens. Of like, I go here, and then he does that, and then yeah, I yeah. do this. Like that's what I picture Juan Roman Riquelme being capable of, of just sort of like slowing it down and being like, okay, he's going to step there. That's going to open his legs up in a half second, and I'll put the ball through there into my like. He can read things so quickly and so well, despite not being particularly fast, despite yeah. not being like fleet of foot or anything like that. His ability to just sort of see everything as it's developing almost like 360 is something that. that I was not really aware that he possessed in that level of, or that to that degree. You're talking about his mind palace. Juan Roman yes, Riquelme exactly. goes into his mind palace <laughs> and figures out exactly where he's going. But That's here's the big right. deal is once he's figured out sort of how to get out of a tight spot, he really can then find, find the through ball, find the angle or find the shot from distance. Or, yep. you know, he can chip it over the keeper or he can like run at the keeper and go around him. He really could do a little bit of everything um, it's not. He wasn't just a, a showboat. It very often had an end product after a little bit of showboating to get himself out of a tight space. The one thing I really noticed as well, which you don't always notice with playmakers, is you really knew how to use the sort of um, a strong arm or a stiff arm. What's it? Yeah. What's it called in football, like college football or NFL? When yeah, you, yeah, stiff arm. Stiff yeah. arm. Yeah, he mm-hmm. also had that. Right, he'd be rolling the ball around with with his sole. He'd be like dragging it back and forth. Yeah. But the players leaning in to try and tackle him, they just couldn't get past this one big muscular arm. He would throw up and not let people get past him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's what you have to do. You have to be able to physically engage so that you're aware of where the defender is and how they're trying to move and how they're trying to disrupt you. But then you can also use that to your advantage. And, you know, you maybe put that elbow up a little bit faster than you might need to. And you also give them a little bit of a warning as well. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a triple threat. Uh, so he can kind of buy himself that level of spacing. He buys himself that level of support and the awareness as well. Because, again, he can track with the player's movement. But then that does... Does allow him to sort of have that read, and I think if we go back to uh, the the game against Real Madrid that they win the Intercontinental Cup in 2000, I believe yeah. it was. Um, he has one Roman come has the second uh, the assist for the second goal. Yes. It's a long ball over the top for Palermo. It's an incredible long ball, but it really it's is like 50 yards, right? It's like yeah, it's like 50, 60 yards, and the way the backspin is is that it like should very much just roll through to Iker Casillas, and instead it just sits up and invites the quick touch and then the quick finish from uh, Palermo. I think it's only a first time finish. I think he lets it yes. off once and gets on the end of he it. Does. But that level of 
vision and then the ability to not just see it. Like anybody can see a thing and be like, oh, he's open. But the ability to then hit it on a dime is uh, maybe not something that so many people have as much. So I don't think we should go too much in detail sure. on the rest of the midfield, but usually the three midfielders behind Raquel May. Mm-hmm. The key guy to me was Sebastian Battaglia, who was a sort of bigger defensive midfielder. He would be the, the guy who was doing the majority of the defensive midfield job so that Raquel May kind of literally didn't have to do any defending. I mean, yeah, that really is the case. Uh, you get the impression that, like, in their pre-match notes, everybody had attacking instructions, and then everybody had defensive instructions except for Raquel May, and his was just like, whatever. Like, that was the instruction. Like, Be ready know, to float go. around, find some space, tie Be your shoes. Yeah. So let, let's talk ahead of Raquel May. Sure. Um, two strikers, almost always. Mm-hmm. One of them in 2000, before he moved to Europe, was Martin Palermo. Uh, mm-hmm. Six foot two Martin Palermo. Sometimes a little clumsy looking, uh-huh. always looking for goals. I would argue that Palermo is like Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> if Frankenstein had just built a monster that was hungry for goals. Mm-hmm. Martin Palermo is the player that I think many British, British pundits were screaming for Arsenal to sign when they were in the days of like pass, 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 and no one shoots. Yeah. Martin Palermo would have shot. Yes. Big guy, muscular not really delicate, but he's just happy yeah. to smash it in or scrap for it in a way that Arsene Wenger would shiver if he saw it. Exactly. You don't, <laughs> you don't need him to be delicate and clever. Uh, you've got Rakami to do that. He can just be the battering ram. That's just fine. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you the best, uh, the best Martin Palermo hungry for goal story is his three missed penalty kicks in the Copa America? I don't know this story. So this is 1999, I believe, mm-hmm. for Argentina. In the Copa America, um, he misses three penalty kicks because... In the course of a game, because even though he missed one, even though he missed two, he was still ready to take the third because Martin Palermo wants goals and he doesn't care how embarrassing it gets. <laughs> he doesn't care how embarrassing it gets. He's a man with lots of confidence and no shame. Yeah. And that might be what you want in a striker. But he kept... Sc- I'm making him sound like almost a laughingstock, which he was after yeah. that, that hat-trick of missed penalties. But he really was fearsome. He was like horrible to go up against and would just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And mm-hmm. Raquel May would keep feeding him and keep feeding him and keep feeding him. And Palermo would get the goals, including those two versus Real Madrid in the, what, first six minutes of the Intercontinental Cup? Yeah. A, a, a decent rate of return on that one. <laughs> um, and, and, and it is a, a book, like, that is a good indicator of maybe what we would expect from Boca if this tournament were real as well, that game against Real Madrid, because it's basically a 7 1 2. It is the four, the back four, and then the three uh, midfielders of uh, <laughs> Basualdo, Serna, and Batalia, the aforementioned, really just kind of bunkering, sitting in. It's not quite just like bunker and frustrate, but the, it's a very defensive game. Raquel May drifts free, and then you've got the two strikers. And the idea, I think, is sort of weather the storm and then hopefully find something through the brilliance of Raquel May or the kind of uh, efficient nature, is what I'll say, of Palermo and Scalato on occasion. Scalato, yeah. So the current LA mm-hmm. Galaxy uh, coach, uh, uh, Guillermo Barros Scalato, mm-hmm. was His offered... brother was also there. Is that what you were hesitating on? Uh, that threw me for a minute. He, yeah, Gustavo, it's not, it's not, he's not quite on the same level, is he? He's not no. starting as often as Guillermo is. Um, I didn't really get a good read on Scalato's style, but w- what I t- kind of understand is that he was the one who was a bit more multifunctional than Palermo, right? He could yes. he could go wide, he could provide a bit of width, he could buzz around a little bit more, while Palermo could be just be the central striker. Is that mm-hmm. does that fit with what you saw as well? Yeah, it did. It does, and I would say the same for Delgado, who starts that game against Real Madrid. It feels like Palermo does a very specific thing and does it really, really well. So then they look to bring in other attacking options who could sort of complement that or facilitate that uh, on occasion. Certainly in this game against Madrid. The other thing I quickly want to note is the fullbacks. So you've yes. got Ibarra, the right back, mm-hmm. and deep breath before I say this, Rodolfo Arubare oh, Arubarena. <laughs> Sure. Why not? Arua Barena, the left back. Uh huh. He scores two goals in the 2000 Copa Libertadores finals. He deserves yep. his name pronounced correctly, or at least a really good effort. Rodolfo Arua Barena. How about that? I, I, I'll take it, I guess. I'm sure uh, some Spanish speakers out there. Uh, we'll, we'll send it to the Cooligans. We'll see what they make of that one. <laughs> I do know that between the two fullbacks, you've got six, uh, six R's. Two double R's. <laughs> um, what I really liked, though, because there's not a lot of width, right, in the 4-3-1-2 or the 4-4-2 diamond, a lot of width comes from Ibarra and Arubarena, um getting forward and, you know, joining the attack. I saw a lot of Ibarra really going at people and almost Carfu-like down that, down that right flank. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so it, it did feel like so. My concern with this team in this competition was th- that thing I was mentioning of like against stronger opposition, sitting back a little bit more, being a bit defensive. Do you feel like they were still able to get forward against strong opposition like Madrid and other other teams, both in like uh, future Intercontinental Cups, but then also just uh, in Copa Libertadores finals, for example? Honestly, I don't know because I didn't watch enough full mm-hmm. full game footage, but I do know in the Copa Libertadores final against Palmeiras, um, Arubarena scores twice. In right. the second leg, so he, he <laughs> so definitely he got, got forward, forward decently well. He got forward enough. He got forward enough. The final guy I want to talk about is Walter mm-hmm. Samuel, because yeah. Walter Samuel like is you know one of the great Argentinian defenders, right? He goes on mm-hmm. to play for Real Madrid. He goes on to play for. He's part of that Jose Mourinho Champions League Inter winning uh, Champions League winning team that Mourinho manages, right? At Inter, um, I was really impressed with all the Walter Samuel footage I saw, and this is a youngish Walter Samuel, right? He's in his early twenties. This guy is big and fast and mean and strong and he's someone who I I thought really knew how to use his strength as in he would hip check you but he would do it in such a precise way that the ref couldn't give a foul um, first of all, how are you going to leave out Roma? Uh, that, that feels like a personal slight, and My I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it is. He, it, there's a reason why he is quickly snapped up uh, from this squad after this season, and it's because of everything you just mentioned. He's bringing like the physicality and ruggedness that maybe you would expect from an, an Argentine defender, uh, but then he also has the kind of technical ability and know-how, and again, passing vision as well to facilitate some of the attacks himself. Uh, and he's also, to my uh, very early point, is sort of representative of Boca at this time, that they bring him in in 97, I believe, uh, so he's only 19 or thereabouts at that point, and it really is sort of a like their ability to flex some financial might and bring in these kind of younger players who they then develop and then send on for spe- on for lots of money, which kind of becomes a thing for Boca as we. Wait, what, what do you mean by flex some financial might if they're bringing players to the youth team? It, it, well, no, it's basically they're bringing in teenagers from other places. He was with Newell's Old Boys, I uh, see. and then they bring like in 16, 17, 18 year olds into their academy and kind of g- develop it that way. Because at the time, it's a very, very bad time in Argentina, economically speaking. Um, this, I think, one of the stories that I read is uh, Rakelme ends up leaving this club because his brother, I believe, gets uh, kidnapped, held hostage. Rakelme pays the ransom, but at the time, is like Argentina is no longer safe. I don't really want to be here, but I think Boca were able to sort of modernize, operate more like a business, and deal with it a bit better than a lot of other clubs. So I think at that point, they're able to kind of come out with a little bit uh, in the black as opposed to completely in the red, and then they can spend that money, which is how they strengthen a bit for this team. One other thing I'm really confused by is Mm -hmm. why do so many of these players end up playing for Villarreal? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like we talked about this like a while back that every now and then clubs just seem to have this like very strong connection with another club and then they end up sort of moving players on. I'm going to guess there was some scout or front office person who maybe moved to VRL and then that uh, relationship was established. Or well, some agent is probably my mm-hmm. guess, right? There was an agent who just established the pathway because like mm-hmm. Riquelme goes there, Pal- uh, what the, sorry, uh, Martin Palermo goes there, I know the Battaglia goes there, I believe the left back who I struggled to pronounce, um, Arubarena, goes there. It's a Does def- Riquelme end up there at some point? Um, yeah, Riquelme goes to definitely, Barcelona. No, no, yeah, Riquelme goes to Barca, and then because they they won't build a team around him, um, he goes to Villarreal, and they That's do build that, that famous mm-hmm. team around him that I th- believe right. got to the 2006 semis, semis in the Champions League. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that was Riquelme's, Riquelme's big hurrah in Europe, yeah. 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 So it just became Boca in Europe, aka Virail. Kind Perfect. of. Yeah. Kind <laughs> of. Um, before before we move on, I want to give a shout out to uh, Stephen Brandt. Uh, Stephen Brandt, who is uh, publishing a book about Boca Juniors, he very kindly um, shared uh, the PDF with us so to help mm-hmm. us out with the research. Thank you, Stephen. Yes. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you, Boca, for being a very entertaining team. And thank you for having, I think, my new favorite stadium. Uh, the Bombonera really is. I spent an inordinate amount of time just looking at that stadium. It really is strange to look at. Have you have you spent much time with it before? Yeah, it's strange because it's so um, it's a bit like Audi Field, but more so um, in that it is very what's the word? Very vertical. Vertical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but only on one side. That's the odd thing to yeah. me is that it's like one uh, sideline is like completely vertical so they don't exceed the footprint like that that of like the lot they're on mm-hmm. but then the, th- the other three quarters are rounded it's a very strange like three quarters is a bowl and then one quarter flat i'm just saying if i was dc united i would say that's why we did that yeah exactly or maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe flip it around and be like well they knew we were going to do that way back when they built the bombonera so there you go <laughs> it's an early tribute yeah exactly <laughs> exactly all right before we talk ix taylor uh do you want to talk about some podium wear 
I do. I do. Let's talk about him because we've got a new sponsor. It's we a do. new sponsor alert. It's Podium Wear. Podium Wear is a custom team apparel manufacturer in Minnesota. Minnesota doing a lot of custom yep. apparel creation. Uh, they're turning the world of soccer team kit ordering on its head, Daryl. They provide custom designs and a full line of soccer apparel, all made to order in their St. Paul factory. So in normal times, we talk about how great this process is and how your experience ordering for your or your kids' club team will be made Mm -hmm. infinitely easier um, by Podium Wear. But these aren't normal times. Um, Because Mm -hmm. of the COVID-19 crisis, Podium Wear has started making face masks for you to wear while you're out and about on the sideline of a soccer match or even during your workouts. You Mm -hmm. can buy a face mask for yourself or customize masks for a team. I'm going to say it again. I said it earlier. Uh, if you're going to do that, make sure you brush your teeth before you go work out because you're breathing in that breath the whole time <laughs> when you're wearing that mask. Uh, Podium Wear is family-owned, friendly, and super easy to work with. If you are going to use them for uh, uniform designs, for kit designs, they can help you create very cool designs. Uh, you can bring them your design yourself, and they can uh, just help you get it going. But they provide a variety of services. Right now, though, the mask's the number one service. Um, Also worth remembering, this is a family-owned company Mm -hmm. and all their facilities are based in the U.S. So by supporting Podium Wear, you're supporting American manufacturing jobs. And if you go to PodiumWear.com and get your custom mask today, bookmark them for when you're ready for your next soccer kit order. Mm -hmm. That's PodiumWear.com. Check them out today. There we are. Thank you very much to Podium Wear for sponsoring today's episode. We've talked Boca Juniors from 2000 to 2003, but... Eh, we'll, we'll get to that Mostly later. Uh, right now, let's talk about another 90s squad, Mr. Grove. Let's talk Ajax. Oh, it's Louis van Gaal's Ajax that won yeah, the 1995 Champions League and did their own Invincibles in the Eredivisie. Yeah, they did. They won the Eredivisie. I didn't know that. Yeah, they won the Eredivisie 94-95, absolutely mm. unbeaten. They were also... Super exciting. Uh, one, for the way they played football. Lots of quick, short passing. But two, just the youth of the team, right? Mm-hmm. The youth of the team. They had two, quote-unquote, old men who were both uh, almost a decade younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> Danny Blint, Daily Blint's dad, was 32. And Frank Reichard was 31. As I understand it, everybody else on this team was under 25. Yeah, that 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 checks out to me. And then you've got, I mean, you've got a 19-year-old Patrick Clivert uh, on this squad. You've got uh, lots of teenage opportunities. I think uh, Nwanko Kano as well was 19 uh, when this team was He was, was even younger. They were. Um, I believe Kano was <sighs> 17 or 18 at the start of the Ooh, season. Clarence, right. Clarence Sadoff was 18. Edgar Davids was mm-hmm. 21. Mark Overmars was 21. This is a team full of youth. Even like Yari Lit- Litmanen, who I thought of as mm-hmm. a senior member on this team, only 23. So, yeah, there's lots of youth to go around on this team. There is, but let's talk about how that youth was utilized. You good with that? Because tactically, this team is, I'm going to say, completely fascinating to me. It is. It's a very Louis van Gaal team, right? Well, see, that's that's what's really interesting to me because this team really helped me understand Louis van Gaal, even with him having coached the club I support. (laughs) It was a good insight into, like, what his background is, but then how he tries to adapt it to his understanding of the world, basically. All right, so this is Louis van Gaal's masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, yeah, it's a good way... way to describe the tactics are essentially it's a dutch style total football mm-hmm. positional play thing but it is very much like you do what louis van Gaal says right yes he will have he established is all about the collective yeah all about the collective in terms of he establishes passing patterns he establishes mm-hmm. where on the field you have to be if the ball is in this position he tells you where to be in relation to your teammates mm-hmm. so it, what it allows for is all these very quick passing moves that have, es- mm-hmm. have essentially been rehearsed a million times in training. So when you see it out on the field, it looks kind of super creative and like everybody's just thinking mm-hmm. really quickly. But you're essentially watching like probably 75% is like muscle memory and knowing where your teammate is because you've been really heavily drilled Dude, in how this all is... fits together. Do you remember the Will Ferrell movie Semi-Pro? Yes, of course. It's the puke. You remember the <laughs> Yes. That's what it is. It's basically they practice this with such level of intensity and dedication that it's like passing sequences that they can run when they're about to puke because they're so tired and they can't even think. They still know how to do it on auto- autopilot because <laughs> it's been rehearsed to that degree. But, but they can go to a high degree because they're all mm-hmm. very young and very yep. fit. And here's my, my big thesis for this is the reason Louis van Gaal struggles at a place like Manchester United mm-hmm. is that famous players don't want to just execute van Gaal's movements and not have any freedom of expression themselves. It is literally the problem he runs into at Barcelona after Ajax. Yep. Exactly. And that's not long after, right? That's like 97. Um, uh, but if you're Clarence Seydorf, great as you become and you're just a teenager, 
you're willing to do what Mr. Van Hal says, right? If you're Patrick mm-hmm. Kluivert, teenager, or Overmars at 21, you are willing to do what Mr. Van Hal says. So all these future world-famous players are already incredibly talented, but willing to uh, willing to execute Van Hal's movements and completely let him be the boss because you're not famous yeah. enough yet to argue with him. And I want to and I want to really double down on that for a moment. Two quick anecdotes for you before uh, for that. Number one, uh, when he takes over, he takes over in uh, ninety one. In ninety two, he sells Brian Roy, who's a, a promising winger. It's a controversial move. Johan Cruyff is not about it. His justification for selling him. This kind of gets at Louis Van Gaal uh, right here. He did not mind running for the team, but he did not think for the team. Yeah. Is his justification for selling him? And the big one would be: Do you know who the number ten was before Yari Litmanen? Of course I do, Tyler. It's Mister Dennis Bergkamp. Who he sells because Bergkamp starts to complain about the rigid nature of the way they're playing and the tactical approach and yep. how it doesn't allow for improvisation. And he is heard and listened to. And re- No, just kidding. They sell him. <laughs> but then you get Littmanen come in. And if yep. you watch Yari Littmanen in, in this mm-hmm. era, he very much looks like a Dennis Bergkamp style of player, right? Yes. Yeah. He, he, he absolutely does. But again, it's a person who they get rid of, they bring in, and he completely buys into the system. He becomes the sort of right-hand man for, uh, 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 for Louis van Gaal, does Yari Littmanen, and it works really well. The other point I wanted to make like from a tactics standpoint about why this team to me is so interesting, that passing you talked about, it's not just that he's all about like sort of these rotations and patterns of play, which he obviously is, but it's also a key thing here that I want to drill down is that Louis van Gaal hates dribbling. And that's a <laughs> thing that I kind of knew but had forgotten, that he wanted uh, – he has Mark Overmars on the left. He has Finiti George on the right. Their job is to stay wide, get past the first guy, not the second guy, no taking on the second defender, only mm-hmm. the first defender. That's a rule. And then you cross. Uh, yeah. Your forward stretches that defense. You create that space for Yari Lippmann in, but it's very much do not dribble, do not attempt to – position switch even you stay in your spots you learn where you're supposed to pass that is how you play do not dribble if you dribble you're done with Louis Van Gaal. <laughs> but it worked right there was so there's so it much did. footage you can find of Overmars beating one guy down the left or Finiti George beating one guy down the right after mm-hmm. they've isolated him 1v1 against someone and they whip balls in often along the floor and you've got say a young Patrick Kluivert on the end of it and then he mm-hmm. can sort of Clever at 18 and you know for most of his career had this ability to sort of finish from any angle which I find yep. really really impressive mm-hmm He's good at geometry. That's what I've always said about Patrick Kluivert. <laughs> I want to talk about the um, sort of the the shape of this team more or less, because sure. um, mm-hmm. I think everybody on this team is worth at least a quick mention as you go through it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Edwin van der Sar in goal to give you an mm-hmm. idea of the greatness. A 23-year-old Edwin van der Sar. He goes for a lot longer, but he wins the Champions League at 23 in 1995. Um, He's wearing pastels in that, uh, in that Champions League final. <laughs> <laughs> I, I found myself captivated by what the way a young van der Sar looks, which is sort of similar but sort of different, and then also the pastel jersey was lovely. The centre-backs in front of him are the mm-hmm. old guys, right? It's Danny Blint at 32 and Frank Rijkaard at 31 are the two centre-backs. I think they're really mm-hmm. important on a team of youngsters to have these two old heads. Rijkaard has just come back from playing for Milan, right? This mm-hmm. is like his, I'll do one more year in Dutch football kind of thing. The important yeah, thing that and- I saw talked about is that Rijkaard would then step out of the back and yeah. join the midfield. So anytime that Ajax, like a 3v3 midfield, like Rijkaard joins and then suddenly they're 4v3. It's a, yeah. it's a simple but brilliant thing that's going on there. Rijkaard consistently helping his teammates outnumber the other midfielders. And uh, I believe that was a thing that Van Hall picked up from Cruyff, who was came before him in a number of different like periods at uh, Ajax. But yeah, that basically makes it a 3-4-3, which was interesting to me because I just like wrote down 4-3-3. It was like, obviously it's a 4-3-3, it's the Dutch, it's Ajax. And then reading more about it, yeah, that's a very interesting wrinkle and Frank Rijkaard very much capable of handling that wrinkle as well. I mean, this is a very Dutch thing, right? To essentially start in a 4-3-3 and that's what mm-hmm. you can put on the screen, but then there are lots of little movements uh, within it. Right. And it's the problem when you play them as well. <laughs> <laughs> so your fullbacks, uh, Reisiger yep. on the right, a uh, nice young, young player at the time. Um, and it's Frank de Boer is the left back usually. His twin brother, Ronald de Boer, is, I'm going to say, one of the strikers, right? It's either yes. Ronald de Boer or Patrick Kluivert at 18 or Nwanko Kanu at mm. 17. That's not a bad three to have to choose from. Um, no, it's not. It's the central midfield that I love, though. Because it's a young Clarence Seedorf and Edgar Davids sort mm-hmm. of at the base with Yari Litmanen at the tip. I love that midfield. I love it as well. And I think for people who are like 
maybe a couple years younger than us, that might seem slightly strange because Yari Lippmann, I think, is one that tends to go under the radar, whereas Clarence Seedorf, Edgar Davids, for any number of reasons, really stand out. And so I think you might think and look at that midfield and think, like, well, two of the three of them are world class. And it really is the case that Yari Lippmann was uh, insanely good at that number 10 spot. And he was so great at sort of being involved in the playing midfield. And then I'm Mm -hmm. sure this was designed. I'm sure it was drilled by Van Gaal. He would essentially then drift and be a late-arriving striker, right? It was often Clivert could receive the ball and Lippmann runs beyond him um, or Lippmann gets to the top of the box and uh, slips it through for, for Clivert or whoever mm-hmm. the striker may be. That's what, that's what made him so effective. And he had those like those tight Bergkamp flicks and tricks that, that, uh, that Lippmann could do uh, mm-hmm. to, to open up a bit of space. The other reason I think Seidorf and Davids are so important um, is they, have, they both have all the skills of a number 10, all the skills of a creative playmaker, but they also can defend and are willing to run hard. Right. They are absolutely complete players. Yeah. I mean, and, and and we see that later on when we've already talked about Clarence Seedorf becoming like one of the two number 10s with AC Milan. Yeah. So certainly, certainly capable of that. But can you imagine what it would have been like to get this squad with this many people at these young ages and just being <laughs> like, well, I'm set for 10 years, even though you're obviously not because all of them are immediately going to be purchased, yeah. usually by Barcelona. Uh, but uh, yes, it, it, it does feel like you've got so much depth and so much youth. And yet it's all like already world class, despite being 19 and 20 and 21. The other thing they did really well was press. I, I yep. watched um, the, the big game for them. Obviously, they beat Milan in the Champions League mm-hmm. final. The big game for any Dutch team is to beat a German team. In yep. the semifinals, they drew Bayern 0-0 away, beat them 5-2 at home. Um, and there's some incredible pressing in that where Bayern are just driven backwards. Um, mm-hmm. And you imagine this young, fit, well-drilled, aggressive, hungry team uh, pressing you. It, it was and is terrifying to watch. Because because it's it's so strange that like the Dutch system really doesn't emphasize fitness. They talk a lot about that about how like we don't train to be the ones who can cover the most distance, and yet you watch them press, and it's like I feel like you're lying. I feel like all you all do is distance running, and you're just it's like uh, like the social media FOMO thing of like you're only posting the times when you're just playing rondos, and in reality, the rest of the time when you're not taking selfies, <laughs> you're running marathons or something like that. I actually think that's one of the Van Hal innovations um, mm. at Ajax in the '90s is to bring in this extra level of fitness that maybe wasn't mm. such a focus for like the Cruyff, Cruyff influenced Ajax you know what I mean there's a yeah. bit more emphasis on uh, on intense fitness yeah I mean that... when you've effectively outlawed dribbling you got to practice something <laughs> um, anything else to say on this team Taylor I know I, I went at length going through the team no, I, I, well, I do, but I think it relates more so to how uh, they're going to match up against Boca Juniors and how I think that game is going to go. So you want to get to the matchup? I think I do. All I right. I do. I'm going to say from the top, I have Ajax winning this game. As do I. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and I think it's rooted for me in the idea that, like, in a lot of ways, this can be billed as, like, a clash of the number 10s, differing styles and, to some degree, differing importance. But I think that's, again, part of why I think Ajax end up winning it, because you have Raquel May, who is this all-important figure. The team is built around him. It's a very Argentine team since the 66 World Cup, I think it was. That's a thing that they would keep doing is that 4-3-1-2. But if you can negate Raquel May, uh, and if you can sort of, like, cut the supply to him or make sure that he doesn't have the time, I think you sort of limit a lot of what Boca are able to do. And I would contrast that with that 1995 final. Louis van Gaal removes uh, Lippmann in at one point because Milan are very effectively man-marking him. They've removed him from the, equ- from the equation, and thus they're not finding any opportunities. And van Gaal completely adjusts the system, and they end up going with uh, like a, a two-man strike force at one point. He makes a bunch of tactical adjustments. He moves things around, and they're able to play without Lippmann. They bring in young forwards, who uh, Patrick Clivert ends up scoring the winner. Yeah. But I think like that ability to adapt when one or two of their key players are marked out is maybe a luxury that I don't know if Boca have as much. Yeah. Right. Let me rephrase that. I know they don't have as much. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about sort of uh, a very uh, structured team system mm-hmm. versus um, essentially a one-man team, but like, or at least yeah. a team that is built around the incredible talents of one man, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe the thing we need to do is talk about how to neutralize Raquel May, because I think it's harder than maybe you'd expect, right? Because you can't have, say, Frank Reichardt step out of the back and follow Raquel May around. Because then Danny Blint is left one versus two with Palermo and Scalotta, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we neutralize Raquel May if we're Ajax? 
Well, I think one thing uh, to note there would be that, like, when Boca are having this dominance, it is as teams are being a bit more, it's an era of, like, more defensive soccer. We're moving towards that. We're moving towards kind of systems that maybe aren't as attacking. And so if you have this creative genius who can unlock very defensive systems, I think it's going to give you a lot of strength. But if you basically have a team you're going up against where the numbers kind of balance and you can put four people into the middle to match their four, then you've kind of got it 1v1 across the board and maybe then you can limit Raquel May. So that would maybe be my approach is that Ars- or <laughs> Arsenal, IX's system sort of already puts them in a strong position to deal with Raquel May, at least from a number standpoint. I would guess as well that Ajax is pressing. They could, mm-hmm. they could essentially um, hassle the other Boca yep. players so much that they can just close down space and squeeze the space. to. I, I, like I would make the goal, don't let them get the ball to Raquel May. Rather than what do we do when Raquel May has the ball, I'd mm-hmm. say don't let them get the ball to Raquel May and, uh, yeah. and deal with it that way. Um, yeah. And then that makes a lot of sense. The other thing is you, you talked about um, how, you know, if Litmanen was having an effective game and like you're comparing Litmanen as the number 10 versus Rakame as the number 10, mm-hmm. then uh, Ajax could adjust. The incredible thing is the other two midfielders, Seydorf and Davids, mm-hmm. they can do a defensive job, but they're also fully capable of being number 10s in their own right, right? Yep. So it's more like Ajax have just got other guys they can go to to do the playmaking, not least because the playmaking is deliberately spread out amongst the entire team. Yeah, I mean, again, to emphasize it, uh, Renis Michaels, Renis Michelle, however you want to go with it, uh, said of, of Louis van Gaal style, there is less room in van Gaal's approach for opportunism and changes in positions. On the other hand, build-up play is perfected to the smallest detail. Yeah. You do not have the individuals. So maybe the better way to put it is like a clash of a number 10 team versus a collective team. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I do think that like sort of not having that uh, personality who can't be substituted because otherwise it's going to be this massive scandal. If you are playing for the collective, then you can sort of swap out and change as you need to. And it does give you a lot more flexibility than being dependent on one person, just from a natural standpoint. I would say we're both favoring Ajax and mm-hmm. I think we're right, but similar to how we both favored Guardiola's Barcelona over mm-hmm. Ranieri's like N'Golo Kante Leicester. Sure. Um, this still would be a fascinating game to watch, right? I st- I'm really I think confident. it would be one of the most so far. Yeah, yeah, I'm confident Ajax ultimately triumph, but I think it wouldn't be so easy to. It wouldn't be so easy that it wouldn't be really, really, really interesting. Yeah, and I think like you go back to that Intercontinental Cup matchup when Boca beat Real Madrid. It's two goals in the first six minutes or so. Yeah. And then that that's really they've got you where they want you. If you can if they hit you early, they can sit back and very happily play a counterattacking system mm-hmm. and cause you a bunch of problems. So if Ajax came in and were maybe a little bit loose or maybe they like uh somebody lost their positional discipline, even though Louis Van Hall would, I think, excommunicate them for that one, you could you could have some problems for sure, and then Martin Palermo would just run through the defense to make things happen as well. <laughs> you mean yeah, I could for example, I could see uh Walter Samuel really handling Clivert or Kanu or Ronald mm-hmm. Dibber. Like, I really think he's that good at that time that they would have a really tough time against him. The other interesting matchup would be the um, the attacking fullbacks of Boca versus those two Ajax wingers. It, it really mm-hmm. depends like who, who dominates possession, right? Whether it's, um, if it's Overmars on the left and George on the right uh, pinning Ibarra and Arabarena back, or if it's Overmars and George having to work back to keep up with Ibarra and Arabarena. So we know we know Ajax can hit on the break and play on the counter. Is this one of those situations, there with everything you've just said, that like we it would be a really interesting game because both of the teams could play on the counter but also might not play on the counter? So we could sort of get a lot of variations in approach and trying to, like, okay, we're going to focus on those fullbacks or the, the wingers, but now we're going to change it to this. I feel like we'd get a lot of variety in this game. I think you do, but I think you end up mostly with Ajax moving the ball around. Yeah. Because, not least I, yeah, because... Raquel May is not sort of the type of player to help with the defensive effort. Mm-hmm. So it's a little, this is harsh on Raquel May, but it's a little bit like 11 versus 10 because you've got one guy who's not willing to run around and chase and do the defensive work when, when I yeah. keep moving the ball. All right. All right. So though, though I feel bad because uh, we've eliminated 50% now of yeah. our uh, South American competitors. I feel, like I, was, I, think I, I feel like I was disrespectful to Martin Palermo as well. <laughs> And I apologize. No, I, I mean, I don't think so. I, I came uh, moments away from like making a reference to him being the Kool-Aid man the way that he made runs and showed up on the spot. <laughs> At least I um, wasn't as disrespectful to Martin Palermo as Ryan Bailey was to the city of Blackburn. So there's that. 
That is true. God, he really does not like Blackburn, does he? Mm-mm. See, enough. <laughs> but no, I think I think this is one of those things where I read a decent amount and then watched a, a good amount of footage. But in the reading, especially was hearing about the importance of Raquel May and how teams went about trying to nullify him versus how teams tried to nullify what Ajax were doing, and yet still Ajax made adjustments and found a way through. Yeah. I, I think that's definitely where I'm coming from, is the sort of versatility of what Ajax can bring to the equation is just a bit more, and that's probably what you want in a knockout round, as we'll talk about when it gets to Liverpool-Real Madrid. Depth is a factor, and ability to have a varied approach is certainly one as well. All right, congrats to Ajax and Louis van Gaal on their progress in the international champion champions cup of history mm-hmm. presented by bill and ted face the music there we go well done buddy you got it all and i'm gonna assume you didn't even have it written down i do not i do Can not I, I wanted to say one more very quick thing just that i found this ax team especially interesting because this is very close to the time period when the back pass rule was changed and so it's also especially impressive to look at this team and think that it's a lot of players who grew up being like, oh, I can just pass it to the keeper and he can pick it up. That's fine. And that it changed and they adapted this quickly, this readily is, again, very impressive. Well, it helps being young, doesn't it? It helps being also that. young. Um, <laughs> also one, that. What, since we're noting things, um, one mm-hmm. thing that really struck me, you did the, uh, the Bosman Soccer 101 recently. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this Ajax team is a team that kind of falls apart after this because of the Bosman ruling. A lot of these guys end up leaving yeah. Ajax on a free. And also, I know that this sounds like it falls apart because of that and also because they're Dutch. Because, man, did I spend some time reading about, like, Dutch mentality and philosophy and their ideas on philosophy and how they all like to uh, have their opinions heard and then don't necessarily love to hear others' opinions, especially when it comes to the Dutch national team. I love the Dutch football way of thinking. (laughs) They're fascinating, aren't they? Yeah, I love the debates. I just would love to be there for some of those debates. How often do you think someone just yelled wrong in the locker room? Because I feel like pretty regularly that had to have happened. I mean, that's how you win arguments, right? That is true. <laughs> I mean, sorry, wrong. I win. There we go. You do. Damn, foiled again. Before we move on uh, to talk about Real Madrid versus Liverpool, today's show is sponsored by Roman. Um, Taylor, if you were to guess on average how many days people in the US days. have to wait to see a doctor, <laughs> you would, of course, say 29 days. Because we've read this ad copy before. I mean, it's, it's, it's in bold, so I think that gives it away. But it is a month, uh, and probably longer these de- days. Absolutely. Or at the very least, it is a more uncertain time to venture out to the doctor's office. Yep. Um, if you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction and you mm-hmm. want to get faster treatment, Roman is here to save you. Um, our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state all from the comfort of home. So they make it convenient to get treatment you need on your schedule. All you have to do is grab a phone or computer, any, I would say any tablet, any device, Daryl. Uh, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If that doctor not decides, 29 days. Not, yeah. If that doctor decides that treatment is mm-hmm. right for you, Roman's Pharmacy will ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, mm. there are no commitments, and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash TSS. Uh, no delay at all there. For a free online visit and free two-day shipping. One more time, that's GetRoman.com slash TSS for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. All right, Taylor. We're ready mm-hmm. for the most modern draw that happened um, when we did. We genuinely did a blind draw, right? Yep. And we got Real Madrid of 2016 to 2018 versus Liverpool of 2018 to 2020. I don't know what to do with this. So let's start with talking about the teams. Um, okay. Am I right that Real Madrid are at home? Uh, you are correct, yes. I am. Okay. So don't think about the current Real Madrid team. That's a little bit different, right? Think of that Zinedine Zidane um, treble Champions League winning Real Madrid team that was essentially Kelo Navas in goal. Um, it started out as what? Pepe and Ramos as the centre-backs. Pepe was... Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last couple of years, replaced by Varane. Uh, your left-back's Marcelo, your right-back's Carvajal, your eternal midfield is Casemiro, <laughs> Modric and Kraus. And normally your front three is Ronaldo on the left, Bale on the right, Karim Benzema at centre-forward. Sometimes Bale was switched out with Isco and it was more of a diamond and mm. then Ronaldo and Benzema as the two strikers, right? That was essentially Zinedine Zidane's team. Mm-hmm. And we still don't, 
entirely know why Gareth Bale was in and out and why they seem to have the falling out they did. There's lots of stories. We've talked about it a lot on this show. But it is strange with the way you've just summarized it that, like, they do tend to have a lot of success when Gareth Bale's on the field. And yet that seems something that Zinedine Zidane doesn't love having have to happen. I think you're you're thinking about the present, though, right? 2016 to 2018, there wasn't as much arguing about Gareth Bale. I think I'm just talking about like that that final against Liverpool in 2018, where he does start Isco over Gareth Bale, and then yeah. Bale comes in and scores a brace. Spoiler alert: if you haven't seen that game, <laughs> uh, it just felt like maybe you should have started him, and maybe those goals would have come a little bit faster. It had nothing to do with any injuries or anything like that. It was all Gareth Bale. Well, I'll tell you what: I'll say this, Taylor. The, mm-hmm. Okay, the, maybe there was a bit of drama with Bale towards the end, but yeah. for the majority of this period, the, I think the key to this Madrid team is that Zinedine Zidane had. The trust of the locker room, because he's Mm. at least as famous as all of the players, including Cristiano Ronaldo, right? Or at least as respected in terms of what he's very recently achieved in football and with Real Madrid. And he's also trusted by the board so that he can essentially do whatever he wants, right? The the story I heard is that Rafa Benitez, his predecessor, was discouraged from playing a defensive midfielder. And that's one of the reasons Real Madrid were not so good. Zidane comes in and he says, no, Casemiro is key. Casemiro starts every game. And Casemiro is one of the keys to this team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that right there is an important place to start because, like, you have the Madrid Galactico team. We'll talk about them. They're all very attacking. Then Mourinho comes in. They're trying to balance what Barcelona are doing. It's a very defensive team. Then you've sort of got a lot of drift and confusion and a bunch of players come in and some leave. And you've got this kind of, like, like mishmash, mishmash of different players that Zinedine Zidane is able to kind of pull together and make a collective greater than maybe it deserved to be. Casemiro is the primary example of that in my mind. Not to say that he's bad, but it is just a player that I don't know how he would have fit in in the Galactico era. I don't know how he fits in with Jose Mourinho. But for Zidane, he feels like the exact right player who does the exact number of roles that he needed. And I, and I feel like it's the weirdness of this squad that allows like these specific skill sets to come together like really effectively for Zidane. I think Zidane puts like a lot of chaos into a temporary version of perfect harmony um there's everything i just said in terms of his profile a phrase there and having the respect of the players and the respect of the board Mm -hmm. i also think he does a really good job tactically of establishing something that's relatively simple because he trusts these players but then also gives them what i want to call like specific instructions in order to win specific games right and i want to pinpoint the 2017 champions league final against juventus as a really good example from what i understand what he says to them is um for juventus uh chiellini and bonucci if you put the ball in and around them they're going to step and win it they're going to head it away they're going to win balls basically when we're attacking keep the ball away from chiellini and bonucci i went back this morning as a refresher and watched the first two goals they go down the wing and they cut it back to the top of the box so that chiellini and bonucci cannot intercept that's how they score the first two goals so i think zidane's just got like such respect and such talent to work with that he can just give them these like minute like game specific ideas to Mm -hmm. work with rather than like a louis van Gaal style um here's all the things you have to do yeah like i would almost (laughs) almost equate it with like uh i think when we were texting back and forth uh, about the Boca Ajax game, and we were sort of like, before we started recording, like, sort of like, do you have any notes? Like, what did you make of this? How do you think it goes? Like, I gave you this very long, like, a couple paragraphs of explanation about why I felt a certain way, and then you, like, well, I think it might just be this, and I was like, yeah, that's what I was trying to say, but I made it very, very long. <laughs> I feel like Zidane is very good at just sort of like, like another example to what you're talking about would be the 2018 final versus Liverpool. Like we talked about going into it, I remember talking about how we weren't sure about Casemiro on the ball, and he doesn't really keep it moving and isn't as good in possession as, say, Tony Kroos and Luka Modric. I'm embarrassed so we they thought do? that. They have... What's that? I'm embarrassed we thought that now. I mean, it was it was it was kind of true in the moment. And if you go back and watch, what he does is has Casemiro and Tony Cruz switch spots when they're building out of the back. Cruz ah. goes in and sits between those two center backs, and like that's what I mean is like rather than doing this whole like rejigging or like having to kind of figure out a move here or make this little adjustment, it's just sort of like all right, well you two switch because you're better on the ball. Done. <laughs> like it's it's very simple, but oftentimes these simple things are the hardest to get right. But then once you do, it makes you incredibly effective. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I think I also liked about this team is there was a squad of players who were quite happy to sort of dip in and out. I remember like Lucas Vasquez mm-hmm. uh, would dip into the team now and again. Isco was in and out of the team when he easily could have demanded a transfer and been a star, a star player, a starter um, somewhere else. Avaro Morata has that one season mm-hmm. where he's just coming off the bench but gets himself a Champions League winner's medal. I, f- I feel like there was just this perfect period 
Um, and it seems like towards said, the oh, end, yeah. Zidane yeah. also made the right choice to leave because I think he knew that certain players were on the downslope and he didn't want to come back until maybe that, that was over. Yeah, I, and, and I think that is, that is a big part of it because like, I give a lot of credit to Zidane for getting the team right, having these people come together, this team come together. Uh, Michael Cox referred to them as like one of the first like modern teams because you look at them and they're not... It's Real Madrid, but they're not really definitively Madrid. They're not definitively Spanish. They're not really German. Like, they're not any one thing the way you can sort of describe a lot of other teams. And so that he got the best out of them is very impressive. But also, when you have that front line, and especially when you have Cristiano Ronaldo, who is very focused on winning silverware and being the best in the world, yes. I think that probably helps a little bit as well. I mean, this is the era of La Decima and then more, 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 right? Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of Ronaldo, my favorite thing is what they figured out with Ronaldo is obviously he's no longer a winger, really, mm-hmm. in this period. But he's also not fully a center forward. And there was that movement that I don't know if this is a Dan thing or a Ronaldo and Benzema thing, but that constant thing where Benzema would drift left to where Ronaldo was and Ronaldo would like run like pass him on the way mm-hmm. back to the middle. And all that was just enough to confuse defenses and get Ronaldo in on goal. Again, such a simple thing, but super effective when you've got players of this quality. Yeah. I mean, I mean yes, because like it's it's just when you've got a person like Cristiano Ronaldo who is just like, that's it, he's going to score. And he has those games when he decides he's going to score and he doesn't. But more often than not, especially in this era, you can sort of rest assured that he is going to make something happen. And if he's not going to make something happen, then Sergio Ramos absolutely will. <laughs> For better or worse. Yes. Um, so should we talk Liverpool? Sure. So Liverpool are last season's Champions League winner. Mm-hmm. They are what I'm going to call the champions elect of the Premier League right now. Yep. Whatever happens with coronavirus and the Premier League and whatever, I mean, it, in, a, in a weird way, in terms of how we rate this team, I don't care if they get a trophy or not, or if there's an asterisk or not. They were the best team in the Premier League this year. They may have been the best team in the world this year. Zero argument yeah. for me. Okay, so I just want to like establish that as a starting point. Um, Jurgen Klopp has this team absolutely humming. They figured mm-hmm. out this incredible defensive structure that isn't just the old pressing that Klopp was famous for when he came in. It's this really yeah. specific thing where he has the front three funnel everybody towards the middle, and then there's always a middle three of Henderson, Wijnaldum, and whoever the third guy may be. Maybe it's uh, Keita, maybe it's uh, Oxlade-Chamberlain. Those three are always ready and waiting to win the ball back. It's a horrible trap, but everybody falls into it. And then when when they have the ball, they can move it forward, and you've got that front three of Salah, Firmino, Mane can just um, interchange and pass and move and one-two and move the ball so quickly. And then you've got the overlapping fullbacks of Trent and Andy Robertson are absolutely deadly. They are a terrifying team right now. And we've, we already talked about how at the back, Van Dijk and say it's Van Dijk and Joe Gomez, they're almost impossible to counter because those guys are both quick and can read the game perfectly. And then Van Dijk comes forward on corner kicks and causes you all kinds of trouble in the air as well. Yeah, and, and I think that level of depth in talent but also like again sort of similar to what we're talking about with Ajax that sort of collective spirit is what really sets them apart and I think is especially what sets them apart this past season uh they are they are the champions we're saying that but like I think you contrast them with say that Liverpool team in 2018 that lost to Real Madrid in the final and there is still like when Salah goes out it's like well that's their biggest threat like that they're they're in a lot of trouble now and I think about the current Liverpool team only a season later and it is sort of like you could tell me any one of their players scored a hat trick and was the most important player on that day and I'd be like yeah that makes sense like maybe it would be strange if it was Allison, but him aside I think a lot of their players are more than capable of star performances from one game to the next so should we get to the matchup then Real sure. Madrid against Liverpool and you mentioned the 2018 final it's worth uh-huh. noting that that is the Zidane era team that we're talking about yep but it's not quite the Liverpool team we're talking about because Allison has not yep. arrived Carrius is in goal mm-hmm. and did you go back and rewatch what Carrius did dude I I remembered it being bad. It's worse <laughs> when you rewatch, not, right? Because I only remember the flap at the end. I sort of completely forgot that there were two. Yep. He gives them two goals. If you have oh my goodness, seen... that's why when you were like, all that Klopp does, and he like changes it, and it's all I wanted to say was like, he just gets rid of Carrius, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest thing. Listener, if you can't remember it, what happens is Carrius oh, has the ball goes to roll it out or throw it out, and he throws mm-hmm. it directly into the outstretched foot of Benzema. That's yep. 1-0 to Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madrid's third goal is the bail shot from distance that goes straight through 
Carius's hands. Yep. So it's worth noting if we're going to use that 2018 final as any sort of yardstick that Carius is no longer there because that summer they spend what 55 million um, to bring Allison in, and Allison is superb from the moment he arrives um, at Liverpool. Right. The other thing about that 2018 final um, is that Salah is injured after something like 20 or 25 minutes. Right. He's out in the 31st, but I think the injury happens in like the 24th. Yeah. yeah. So Ramos essentially arm locks him and like he said, I think he put he dislocates his shoulder. Right. With. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how deliberate it is or not. We went, I went back it's, and listened to that episode if you want to know. How deliberate did we think it was? We said not deliberate. We said he is, he is uh, I think you said it's like the cynical aspect of dark arts defending, that you grab the player, you kind of lock the arm so they can't get away, so you can close it. Then he's reaching across to poke the ball away, which is where the contact occurs, and then he's already got the arm locked. So when he yeah. falls, like basically he means to make contact. He's trying to hold on to Salah. He is not trying to separate his shoulder. I agree. Is what we came down on. I agree with 2018, Daryl. He sounds smart. Yay! <laughs> so that's kind of a freak accident then, right? So yeah. in a weird way, we can't just say, well, Madrid won that final... Um, therefore Madrid should win this matchup because you've got the freak accident with Salah yeah. and you've got Karius in goal instead of Alisson. And you've also got Trent Alexander-Arnold. I believe he started that game, but he is now two years older and two years better. Yeah. Uh, and you've he also is. added, what, Naby Keita. We've added Fabinho, uh, Divock Origi and uh, Jedan Shakiri are sort of the guys off the bench in that front three instead of Dominic mm-hmm. Solanke or whoever it was in 2018. So it's a very, it's a better Liverpool, basically. Do you remember who it was from Mohamed Salah? No, I don't. It's a massive. We talked about it for like twenty minutes in the hour-long show. Who was it? Because this is—it's very important because it's—it's it's part of my argument. I do Adam think Lallana. Liverpool wins this matchup, and it's because they had Adam Lallana. Adam Lallana. <laughs> like that is like because what it comes down. I, my argument is basically. I, 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 first of all, if both of these teams could lose, that'd be terrific for me. But since they cannot, uh, I would argue that Liverpool win this matchup that we're talking about because they lost this 2018 final. Ooh. And I think they learn. Not to say that it was like just this game, but I think a lot of maybe the concerns Jurgen Klopp might have had about his team are crystallized in this game. And it's, we're not sure about Dejan Lovren as our starting center back. They, they did have Joe Gomez already. They did have, I believe, uh, who, uh, Joe Matip as well, but he doesn't uh, play in, in, in this final. And I think that helps them solidify the center backs. But obviously getting rid of, Loth- uh, uh, getting rid of Karius, then you don't have to start Milner in the final. You instead start Fabinho uh, in the 2019 Champions League final. Then you do have more depth. As you said, they signed Jared on Shakiri, so I feel like they knew, okay, if one of those front three gets injured, we've got to have some other actual capable replacements and not Adam Alana, who's carrying an injury and doesn't really know how to play that wide attacking position. Here's my counter, Taylor. Mm-hmm. That 2018 Real Madrid team was yeah. the least harmonious and maybe yeah. not the best of the 2016 to 2018 Real Madrid teams. That 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 is the argument. Yeah. It, it, is, it is strange because though the personnel are very similar... You like Zidane's you on the way out, just right? those, mm-hmm. and Ronaldo we know is on the way out. Yeah. Gareth Bale is sort of on the way out in terms of Zinedine Zidane's estimations and uh-huh. remains almost on the way out. But yeah, you've got it's the last dance. You've got it's a, the last dance. That, <laughs> it is. It is. It's just that watching that game again against Liverpool, if Mohamed Salah doesn't get injured, I I am very confident Liverpool win that game. Not just because he would have scored a goal or something like that, but. To have to swap in Adam Lallana really did limit their ability to be efficient. But two of Real Madrid's three goals are complete flukes. They're complete howlers from uh, from Karius. And then the other goal that we haven't mentioned is Gareth Bale's ridiculous bicycle kick, which yes. is worth noting is basically a horrible cross from Marcelo that he somehow is able to get on net. <laughs> but like it is, I'm not taking anything away from that, but it is three very fortunate goals for Madrid. And I think Liverpool might have won that game if they had a bit more depth and a bit more health. So then you're right. It goes to Let's say Liverpool did win that game. Let's have them then play the 2017 or 2016 version. Yeah. Are those teams significantly better? You're asking a question I can't answer. I think these two mm-hmm. teams are equally as good, and I, I genuinely don't know how to separate them, right? Like, mm-hmm. the front threes of, like, uh, 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 Salah, Mane, mm-hmm. Firmino are just so incredible, but then they're up against, like, uh, Ramos and Varane and Marcelo and Carvajal. I I don't know what happens with that. The midfield threes are maybe where it's all, what it's all about, right? Uh, Kroos, Modric, Casemiro against say what's the peak Liverpool? Henderson, um, when all of them Fabinho is what I would go. Okay, with. yeah. I mean, I don't know how to separate those two either. 
So I think I think my final thing that had me leaning Liverpool, and I'm happy to be persuaded. I'm also happy for this to like be put out to a vote. We could do that for the first time and see what people say. But I I, I think part of the, what's sticking in my mind is the narrative that I have heard and read on several occasions that what we've talked about with Zidane is true. That I think he's very good at at explaining like what he wants in very simple ways. He keeps it pretty simple and allows the players a decent amount of freedom, provided they're executing the game plan. The criticism I've heard of him as a manager is that he doesn't adapt very well. That he doesn't make Make in-game adjustments fast enough and isn't sort of daring enough. He doesn't do the Louis van Hall. I'm taking out two of my best players with 30 minutes to go because I got to try something. He might be a little bit more hesitant, whereas I feel like Jurgen Klopp isn't going to change the system, obviously. He's not going to change the overall approach, but maybe we'll make those adjustments. We'll move somebody 20 yards further up or 20 yards further back to make the opposition more uncomfortable. And I, and I guess I give the advantage from a managerial standpoint to Jurgen Klopp over Zinedine Zidane and that might be incorrect, but that's where I am with it. All right, let's 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 think about some player matchups as well then. Sure. Um, okay, so Trent Alexander-Arnold is going forward and he comes up against Marcelo. What happens there? What happens next? I think... I think Trent Alexander-Arnold wins. Okay. I think. So this is the thing that... Um, we, we can go back to that, that uh, the 2018 final because one of the things that I thought... Uh, Madrid did pretty effectively was that they had Marcelo get forward and sort of central very early and very often. And I think the idea there was to pin back Trent Alexander-Arnold. I think they wanted to take the game to him as quickly as they could to prevent him from growing in. But he does. And when he gets in behind Marcelo, uh, Germany know this. Liverpool know this as well, I think. You can find some opportunities. But you could also see Marcelo scoring goals, and he provides the assist for that Gareth Bale bicycle. So maybe they cancel each other out. Maybe they both score five goals and let in five goals themselves. (laughs) And I'm also picturing that Benzema-Ronaldo switch that I was talking about. Benzema drifts left. Ronaldo comes in Mm -hmm. from the left. Um, What does the Liverpool defence do in that situation? Does Van Dijk and Trent kind of pass one off to the other and we end up with Ronaldo running at Van Dijk? I I could not tell you what happens with 2017 Ronaldo running at 2020 Virgil Van Dijk. I assume the the world just explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And I kind of want Pepe in there, too. (laughs) While we're talking about things that will make things explode. I wouldn't mind seeing some Pepe involved in this game. So, again, I am not willing to... to, I guess I'm too scared to, like, really... Let's put it... You want to put it to a vote? You want to put it on Twitter and see what people say? Okay, yeah. Let's let's do it. Let's do it. We'll put it... Actually, I don't want to put it on Twitter... Because okay. people who people are on Twitter will not have properly listened to the show. Okay. How about if I create a poll and mm. I put the link in the show notes so that only people who've listened to the show know whether to vote or not? All right. I, you get what I I'm appreciate saying? all of the 11 people who are going to vote in our poll. Well, at least it'll be 11 people who are informed <laughs> rather That's than true. six mm. Real Madrid fans and five Liverpool fans who just happened to see it on Twitter and voted for the team they support. That's, you get yeah, what I'm that's fair. And and yeah, absolutely. And I would say with that, like I, I I feel like Liverpool might win because and that might be recency bias because they have been so comprehensively dominant uh this past season. Yeah. But I'm also aware that like I'm not a particular fan of either of these teams, and I'm sure there are people who have very strong opinions and are much more familiar with these teams that would be able to say, like, oh, it's obvious, uh, Modric couldn't handle this, or Fabinho couldn't handle that. So I also welcome sort of uh, hearing the perspective of other people who might be more familiar with both of these teams. I will say, I think Real Madrid's central midfield... Sorry, this is just a thought that sparked in my head after you mm-hmm. saying Modric. I think Modric and Toni Kroos and Casemiro are kind of just better footballers than Liverpool central midfielders at least by a little bit but the Liverpool midfield seems to function more as a unit so there's the whole like weird back and forth of that as well I mean Liverpool literally targeted Casemiro from the outset in that 2018 final they they dispossess him in the first 20 seconds and almost get a shot off that's I think blocked for a corner but does, but, does Zidane so, fix it afterwards or has he already got the plan to have Tony Kroos be central I think that, that's part of it. Like, they, they rotate. I think that's usually, like, from goal kicks and stuff like that when they're building out. Or, say, Navas has made a save. Cruz will hang back a little bit more, and Casemiro will push up. But anytime Casemiro got the ball, that seemed to be the pressing trigger for Liverpool. I, th- I, know, I think I know what's going to happen. I think hmm. Liverpool are going to be one niller. It's going to be the 79th minute. Oh, boy. And then a pandemic will shut the entire world down, and they won't get to see out the game. <laughs> Oh, that's that's brutal. And we'll just that's be brutal, we'll just be waiting to see what happens. So we'll put the poll in the show notes, and people can decide who wins this game. I I, I look forward to that. And I should say I've talked a lot about the positives of Liverpool. My final note would just be that I feel like though we talked about them briefly, 
I do wonder how Van Dyke and what other central defender he might have with him handle yeah the the changing that you mentioned, but just also like a Ronaldo from 2016 who maybe really wants to show that this is or yeah yeah 2016 like really wants to show that he is the dominant force yeah. and he is the best player on the world or on the planet. He might relish going up and beating Virgil Van Dyke in a way that maybe other people would try to avoid the best defender on the planet right now. <laughs> oh, I've just realized as well, you've got the set-piece battle of Van Dyke yeah. going forward and attacking corner kicks and free kicks, and you've got Ramos going forward and attacking corner kicks and free kicks. Mm-hmm. Again, I think they're both magnificent at doing it, and I don't know who I, who I back. I'm getting splinters, <laughs> splinters in my butt from sitting on this fence. Oh boy. oh, boy. Well, we've already established. We're going to put it out. We'll see what people say, and we'll announce the winner uh, on the Friday show, uh, which is when we'll be back before then with uh, listener questions on Wednesday. Daryl and George are doing Chapter 2 of Book Review on Thursday. Is that you don't, correct? You can't remember the name of the book, can you? Uh, I had it in front of me just a moment ago. Uh, it's a very long one, isn't it? Doesn't it's, it have like a, a title and a subtitle? Yeah, it's The Age of Football, colon, mm-hmm. Soccer in the 21st Century. That's not that hard. I should have been able to remember that. <laughs> Honestly, I held off on football. I couldn't remember if it was soccer or football. That was what threw me. I think very wisely they used both. There you go. So they're, SEO, they're, they're good, wise like that. Good SEO, David Goldblatt's publishers. <laughs> I don't know if that will be useful for us. I've already forgotten the matchups we previously agreed upon. But will David Goldblatt's book about the 21st century help us as we talk about – let's see. I've got it here now. We're going to be talking on Friday show about Barcelona from 1992 versus the New York Cosmos from 1977. Cruyff's dream not, team. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Versus – uh, Pele's dream team yeah. <laughs> versus cocaine uh, and then we've got Hanved 1954 to 1956 versus Manchester City from 2017 to 2019 Ooh. I'm guessing David Goldblatt's book will be maybe useful because I'm going to guess he spent some time with Man City um, I haven't gotten to the European chapter yet uh, we're going to be talking about the Middle East um, on Thursday's show yeah oh cool yeah. that's exciting Airbnb will get to mention several times Tyler um, in the, cha- oh, the chapter is it, I'm is it Airbnb FC Yes, and then a lot about sort of um, Kurdish movement for uh, a um, an independent football team. Ah, uh, okay, that's exciting. Yeah. I want to read that. I'll read that then. Right, get on it. Get on it. And then the uh, the episode with George will be recorded and published on Thursday. Nice stadium. Nice stadium. FC. Small, but nice. <laughs> All right, Taylor. Anything else to add before we uh, before we wrap this up? Nope, I'm happy that I remembered our matchups for Friday, and I look forward uh, to discussing them and to finding out who wins Real Madrid v Liverpool. Yeah, again, poll will be in the show notes, and then Taylor, you and I will be back on Wednesday with listener questions. Thank you. We had a lot of listener questions recently, a lot of good ones. We'll be talking about all those on Wednesday's Total Soccer Show. Until then, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. <laughs> 